welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have on David Edmonds. He's a writer and philosopher whose many critically acclaimed books have been translated into more than two dozen languages. He's the author of The Murder of Professor Schlick and Would You Kill the Fat Man? And the co-author with John Eldenow of the international bestseller Wittgenstein's Poker. He and Nigel Warburton co-host the popular philosophy bites podcast and his new book available now is called parfit a philosopher and his mission to save morality welcome david it's a pleasure to have you on it's very nice to be here thank you for inviting me absolutely and so in his book david wrote the chapters in reading parfait cover different aspects of reasons and persons but several of them got parfait to reflect more deeply about what it is to have a reason to do something and that drew him into metaethics take a statement such as quote unquote torturing innocent children is wrong what is its status how can such a statement claim to be morally objective what would such a claim to objectivity mean how should we respond to a skeptic who insisted that it was merely an opinion and no more valid than the diabolical judgment uh, that torturing innocent children was just fine. Thanks very much. How should we respond to the skeptic's cousin, the relativist, who claims that morality is relative to culture? So, so that it is, so that what is morally true in London might not be morally true in Lagos or Lahore. So I love that. And then, so now starting to think about just Parfit and what he meant to philosophy and who he was. I mean, when you're thinking about sort of the grandiose people or, uh, you know, kind of humans in academia, one would think that somebody who, tries to make a claim to moral objectivity is quite a bit delusional, right? So uh, how is it that we started taking, for, first of all, who is David, Derek Parfit? Uh, and then how do we start taking him so seriously? Well, who is he? He was, because he died in uh, 2017, mm -hmm. he was an English philosopher who specialized in moral philosophy. He was born during World War II in China. Both his parents were missionaries. All four of his grandparents were missionaries and they were in China doing missionary work. Uh, they were medics by that stage. And they eventually come back to England. He goes to um, prep school, which is a kind of paid school here. He then goes to the poshest prep school in the country, which is called Eton which has a ridiculously kind of um, outsized role in British life. Uh, he then goes to Oxford. Um, he's a historian at that stage. And uh, he then gets a fellowship to America. And that's where he discovers philosophy in, in the two years that he's in America. He goes back to Oxford and basically spends the rest of his life at a college called All Souls in Oxford University. And All Souls is a, is a kind of unusual college in that it's purely for research. It has no undergraduates. It's only for people researching a subject. And so, you know, on the face of it, um, he doesn't have a very interesting life, but he's a very interesting, we may go on to talk about this, he's a very interesting person. So, you know, on the face of it, it's not very promising biographical material, but he's an unusual personality. Why should we take him seriously? Well, um, this is not uncontentious but some people rate him as one of the great moral philosophers of the yeah. 20th century i mean there are he has his detractors it's not universally acknowledged that he, he's you know one of the greats but he has many di disciples and some people and, and a large number of very serious people 
think he's one of the most important moral philosophers of the 20th century. So that's why we should take him seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thinking about it just again from the perspective of relativism versus objectivism, how is it that he, so what is it that led him to believe that objectivity was a possibility in moral ethics? Because most of the time the thinking is where it's sort of like secular relativism, which I mean, obviously I think most of our listeners will be familiar with. And then you have kind of religiosity and, you know, the 10 commandments and the idea of Jesus Christ and the thinking that, you know, we kind of do unto others, but the, so how does he find the sort of middle ground between the two where it's not so much religious, but it's not as secular as we tend to consider it? Well, yeah, he, he spends the last 25 years of his, of his life obsessed with this one question, which is whether morality is objective in a kind of very strong sense. Um, and um, he has ignored that question up until then, because he thought that metaethics, which deals with these kinds of questions, he thought metaethics was just too difficult and he couldn't cope with it. So he spends the early part of his life working on very you know, interesting topics for which really he's, the, he's most famous. Um, and I think his really the most important work is early on. But then he comes to believe that um, if morality isn't objective, then none of his early arguments rest on solid ground. Mm. Um, and it's only if he can sort of demonstrate that there is this solid ground of objectivity then that, that uh, these other arguments he has about morality make sense and he comes to this very slightly odd view that um if morality isn't objective then his life and all our lives are meaningless um that then we descend into nihilism or as you say into relativism and that isn't ne nearly good enough for him because he wants to as I said in that passage that I read out, he wants to say, it's not a matter of opinion that torturing innocent children is wrong. It's not what we happen to believe in the UK or in the US, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to other parts of the world. It's an objective truth, wherever you are, in, in time, in space. Um, uh, and th that is what he devoted you know, the last period of his life to trying to demonstrate to most people's eyes, I think unconvincingly, but he does come up with nonetheless interesting arguments. So it's, you know, it's, it's not entirely wasted all that work, but lots of people remain unconvinced. Yeah. Can we get into that a little bit? What are those arguments? How did he frame them? Well, I mean, he, he has various arguments, but he thought that, um, morality was really a bit like mathematics. So, so he thought the idea that objectivity had to be, as it were, tangible was mm -hmm. nonsense. You know, physics is objective because we can sort of measure physics or we can smell it or see it or it, it, it's um, we can we can or we, we, we can um, even if we can't see it, we can measure it with instruments or we can work it. We could work it out with mathematics. Um, we can work out what the objective world must be like. Um, and there are standards of evidence and we can test it and so on. Morality is not like that. On the other hand, he draws a parallel between morality and mathematics. Mm -hmm. So two plus two is four is something which is true. He believed and many people believe whether you again, whether you're in America or whether you're in um, the UK or wherever you are in the world. Um, but it's not something you can touch. It's a truth that's out there. It's an objective truth that's out there. But it's not something that is 
tangible or measurable or verifiable or falsifiable or any of these other things that we do with with scientific truths. Um, so he thought it was perfectly possible that you could have that kind of objective truth. Um, and he has these various arguments. He has one argument which is he calls the the argument for Tuesday indifference. And mm. he imagines that um, you're being offered some kind of ter terrible sort of pain um, in in the future. And um, you don't want it, except you're entirely indifferent if it takes place on a Tuesday. You say, I'm t I don't mind if it's on a Tuesday. And you know that it's going to hurt just as much on a Tuesday uh, as any other day. Um, he says that is totally illogical. Um, that argument makes no sense. It's it, it, just because you believe it um, uh, and you claim that you're indifferent, that, that it, it, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to believe. Um, you can't be indifferent about Tuesday suffering. Suffering, makes just, suffering is just as bad on a Tuesday as any other day. And anybody who claims mm. the, the opposite is, 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 is wrong. Um, so he has these various arguments to show that um, we have to take suffering seriously, that it's ridiculous not to take suffering seriously. Um, and um, uh, he, he's desperate, desperate, desperate to, to, to demonstrate to all his opponents that he's right about this, because, as I say, he thinks that you can't get morality off going at all unless you've got this this uh, these objective truths um so it's a very long book and i've summed it up there in about a minute and a half um he has lots of other arguments one of the things he wants to do is to demonstrate that different moral traditions namely a tradition coming out of immanuel kant a tradition coming out of consequentialism or utilitarianism a tradition coming out of contractualism which is the kind of um, moral philosophy or political philosophy associated uh, with Tim Scanlon, amongst other people, mm -hmm. that these are what he calls um, climbing the mountain from different sides. Uh, and, and his later big book, which was called On What Matters, was initially called Climbing the Mountain. And his metaphor is that all these different moral traditions, they think they've got different views about morality. In fact, they're all climbing the mountain from different slopes. And when they reach the summit, they realize they've got all these things in common. And actually, they realize they agree on all of the all the important things. Mm. Um, and th that's sort of linked to his idea of moral objectivity, because you mm. couldn't be a moral objectivist and have all these different views about what constituted morality. So he thought morality was objective and that all these different moral traditions were not nearly as different as they imagined. Yeah, and then so if we're starting to think about it just in terms of an evolutionary perspective, so uh, the philosopher, I know he's a little bit obscure, many in our audience might not necessarily know him, he was a Finnish philosopher named Edward Westermark, and so with Westermark, I don't know if he was one of the first, but his thinking was essentially that there's kind of an evolved sense of morality, and so the idea that it wasn't necessarily subjective, but it wasn't objective either, he was a staunch atheist from uh, my vagueish memory of it, and then so my thinking was when you're thinking about evolution and you're thinking about sort of these 
intuitions that we have, uh, sort of empathy, right? Uh, sympathy, guilt, uh, let's say regret, right? All of these have to be based on some system of morality. So maybe the system itself hasn't particularly evolved, but would you say that Parfit was kind of more thinking about it in terms of how we respond to unethical issues or uh, how we respond to, rather to unethical behavior? That essentially there's this fundamental part of us that says that, you know, there's a kind of inner knowing or an innate knowing of what right and wrong is. Well, I think he did believe that. And there is the interesting question of how this relates to evolution. So evolution, no doubt, has thrown up. He doesn't talk very much about this, but no doubt evolution has thrown up a moral system. You know, we've evolved in a particular way. We have moral sensibilities. That makes perfect sense from an evolutionary point of view, because we need to trust each other. Um, you know, if, 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 if we if we had no morality, if we all went round in a kind of Hobbesian world, threatening each other, society could never get 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 going. We need we need lots of aspects of morality to flourish. Um, but I think, like Peter Singer, who is a you know regards Parfit as I think one of his philosophical heroes, um, he would take the view that. We shouldn't just assume that anything we've inherited from evolution is, as it were, morally correct, that we have all sorts of aspects of our evolutionary inheritance which misfire in a moral way. So, for example, you know, Peter Singer might say, well, we've, we've evolved to eat meat. Obviously, we've evolved to eat meat, but eating meat is something we don't need to do, and it's the way we treat animals is morally totally objectionable. Another example of that might be the way we disregard the interests of people who live on the opposite side of the world. I mean, again, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, we, it's obvious why we would care about our nearest and dearest, but also why we would care more about people in the next village than people on the other side of the world. And Peter Singer says, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, that makes perfect sense. We, 150,000 years ago, or whatever, we didn't know what was happening on the other side of the valley. But from a moral point of view, we can now see we, we can use reason to sort of overcome those moral instincts and those evolutionary instincts and to acknowledge that we've we've got some evolutionary hangovers that we need to suppress and adopt a different position. Um, so those are just a couple of examples. So no doubt we have morality because of evolution, but evolution, the morality we've inherited from evolution is not necessarily the correct morality. I love it. That's very interesting, by the way, uh, that you mentioned Peter Singer. It, it, I, I feel like uh, Parfit was sort of the opposite, right? He actually cared more about people uh, distant from him than he did the, those. Uh, he had less regard for people close to him. Uh, I, I believe there was a, a debate that he had with someone and uh, World War One was brought up and he actually wept uh, for a while, right? right? And had a, a intense reaction thinking about the suffering of others, right? But in his personal life, he was not someone, like for example, if one of his friends uh, had a wedding or, or something like that, he wouldn't necessarily be so inclined to attend it. He'd say he's busy or something like that, which I find very fascinating about him. Yeah, he was a very interesting personality study. As you say, his moral philosophy, he, he was a consequentialist, basically, he was a consequentialist, with little frills and complications attached. But basically, he believed that what mattered was the consequences of one's actions. And he had lots and lots of arguments about 
how we got to that position. But um, when you're writing a biography of somebody, it's interesting to compare their personality to their philosophy. And um, Parfit was a natural, instinctive, sort of dispositional consequentialist in the way that you said. So most of us care much more about our nearest and dearest and much less about people straight, you know, who we, who we don't know, strangers. Mm-hmm. But Parfit would get very upset talking and reading about the suffering of people who were not only on, you know, on the other side of the world, they weren't even present. They were historical figures. As you say, World War One used to upset him a great deal, thinking about the suffering in the trenches. And as, as, as again, as you say, um, he, he felt a very weak sense of personal obligation to his his closest friends. And and because he was so so much of a monomaniac and so obsessed with work, he wouldn't give his friends any time for these kind of social, very important social events, like, um, like their weddings. And there's a very sad episode in the book in about 2006, 2007, when he's completing, nearing the completion of On What Matters, the second book, he only writes two books really in his lifetime, although the second book comes in, in three volumes. Um, he's working on that, he's obsessed about getting that finished and a former girlfriend who's got very advanced cancer and doesn't have very long to live is in all souls as is one of his old friends who's arrived from the us and they say to derek you know let's all go out for supper like the good old days and um derek says sorry i don't i don't have time and (laughs) the person who relates this story that the american academic who relates this story says to said to me you know i wanted to say derek you're working on this book called on what matters well this matters mm-hmm. um but for derek what mattered more was his book yeah and you know thinking about it in terms of uh, the idea of consequentialism so we had uh, two people on so we had michael Shermer on and then we had massimo piliucci on and what's so interesting is michael Shermer says well yeah consequentialism makes a lot of sense you know the data can tell us what's right or wrong and massimo piliucci would say well actually and uh, so i mean he didn't watch the show but he knows Shermer's uh take he says well i you know michael Shermer, who's my friend and i agree with him but i don't think that we can leave philosophy totally out of it so thinking about this in the context of uh derek parfit right what would he say how would he conceptualize consequentialism right because on the one hand, you have the more social scientific uh, kind of minded, like Michael Shermer, who will say something like, well, the data can kind of tell us everything that what we need to know. And of course, Michael could disagree. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing his uh, kind of understanding or interpretation. But Massimo will say, no, we have to have a fundamental understanding of those values before we actually interpret the data. So how would Parfit sort of, would he agree more so with Shermer or Massimo? Oh, he would definitely believe that you had to have a normative view. The data doesn't tell a story on its own. I would say he would definitely say the data is not enough. You have to have a theory about about what to do with the data. So he would definitely take that side of of the argument. I think. Yeah, and then so how would and then you know now we're getting deeper. How do we then now conceptualize what our values are supposed to be, right? Because if the data can't tell us that, when you know we're looking at it from a kind of perspective of the world, and, and you know it's not relative, right? How do we then look at consequentialism in the context of values? Because when if let's say we are arguing that values are objective, how can they be so? Um, well, he comes up this, it's actually in an appendix on Reasons and person, Persons. Reasons and Persons is his first book, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's his most important 
work and it's a it's a work of of genius really it's a it's a it's a brilliant work on moral philosophy actually in the appendix um he comes up with this um wonderful sort of tripartite view of how one should judge a life uh, which has been very influential but it's just in an appendix so, he, so on the one hand we could say well what matters what what we need to measure is happiness and pain so you go around the world measuring how much happiness there is, how much pain, whether this action will produce the most happiness or the most pain. That's one way of doing it. A second way of doing it is to look at preference satisfaction, which is not the same as happiness or pain. So I want to achieve X, Y, and Z. Um, I, uh, are my preferences satisfied? That's called the, the desire approach. Um, a third approach is... Um, the objective list approach, which is now, I think, probably um, the most influential. And that says your life goes best according to an objective list, whether or not. So your subjective experience, whether you're happy, that's a component of it. It's important that you're happy, but it's not mm -hmm. the be all and end all. So let's say you have a subjective preference to count the number of blades of grass that there are in, in Central Park. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you spend your life counting the number of blades of grass that are on Central Park. Um, so you may, that may make you happy, and that may satisfy a preference, but if, like me, you think that's a total waste of time, that doesn't get you anywhere on the objective list. So the objective list mm -hmm. is the important list of things that really matter in life, which part of which will be your happiness, your well-being, but other parts might be things like friendship, um, achievement, a whole bunch of objective things that aren't necessarily just measured from from your subjective experience and 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 how you see the world. Mm. Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, because the thinking is, I mean, this is, I think, where we always get trapped in thinking, you know, what is it that's the right thing to do? And kind of how do we kind of reason to it? So, and Parfit, I mean, from the understanding here is that Parfit in devoting his life to it, he he really thought that there was sort of a way to it. And, you know, I mean, for somebody to devote to their life, I mean, yes, there's a bit of grandiosity there, but it's also obviously pretty amazing. So um, now at the other end, right, you know, with the detractors, so what are the arguments against his understanding of what morality should be? Well, I... I'll tell you about the paper that, that most sort of frustrated him, which gives you an idea what the other side is. So there, there's a very famous philosopher called Bernard Williams. Mm -hmm. um, and Parfit and Bernard Williams, well, I think they began as friends and they respected each other. And Parfit always loved Bernard Williams. And I think by the end, Bernard Williams was very irritated by Parfit. But Bernard Williams has this... Um, short but profoundly influential paper called something like internal external reasons and what williams argues is that you can have internal reasons to do something that you, there might be you may want to do something for various reasons but it makes no sense to say you have a reason to do something whether or not you want to do it and uh, the example that a rather sort of old fashioned, you know, objectionable example, I think that Williams comes up with is an example of a husband who treats a wife very badly. And um, you can try and persuade the husband that he should behave differently. And you say to the husband, you're making your wife very unhappy. You could say it's not doing your marriage any good. You could say a thousand different things to try and convince him. 
Um, but if at the end of the day, Bernard Williams says, um, the husband says, well, I accept all that, but I'm still going to carry on <laughs> treating my wife very badly. Bernard Williams says, well, there's, no, there, there's nothing more you can say. That's the end of it. You know, you've run out of, you've tried to persuade this person, you've failed, there's nothing more to say. What Derek wants to say is that um, the husband has a reason to treat the wife well, whether or not the husband believes, internalizes the reasons. That, that there, there is just an objective reason to behave well to, your, to, well, to everybody, but maybe particularly to your partner, um, which um, exists over and above whether the husband thinks there's a good reason for doing it. So the other side says, it makes no sense to talk about reasons that don't um, connect to somebody's desires, to somebody's wants. Um, Parfit doesn't believe that. Parfit says, no, it doesn't matter what they desire, what they want. That person has a reason to do it, irrespective of whether they want to do it, whether they desire to do it. So that's the nub of, that's, that's one nub of the argument between the objectivist and the subjectivist, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I I could see a sense to uh, so when when Parfit says that um, he would have a, an objective reason, let's say, to treat his wife uh, well. Uh, what does uh, well mean here, in terms of just in some sort of positive manner, or well in the sense of um, what? A, I mean, this is this is hard because I know this is objective. Um, well, I think he he, yeah. he doesn't really need to spell it out. He says whatever your definition of well is. Let's say with respect, with love, you know, however you want to fill out the equation. Um, yeah. Parfit says that equation can be filled out without the husband caring about it. OK, so yeah. whatever you think about what goes into a decent, respectful, loving relationship, you define it. And Parfit says, well, once we've got the definition, once we know what counts as treating somebody well, uh, he doesn't really care about the content so much. I mean, he, we can argue about that. But once we've got the content, what's important to Parfit is if we accept that that's what treating somebody well means, that we have a reason to treat somebody well, irrespective of whether we want to treat them well. Understood. Yeah, I, I think I was just going in, in my mind of thinking about uh, conditioning or, or maybe whatever might have been going on in that particular husband's uh, mind, external environment, internal environment, Learn and then values. thinking that you know, oh, this makes sense. Like, this is well in my mind, what is rational in this particular context, but maybe I'm- Yeah, I mean, you could imagine, wrong. you could, well, like, you could imagine, like, I don't know, a psychopath or a sociopath or something who sort right. of acknowledges <laughs> what the content is. And they say, yeah, I understand that, um, I don't know, relationships flourish when you respect each other, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I, I just don't care. I just don't care. Yeah. And Parfit says, well, you're wrong not to care. And William says, that makes no sense. I can make mm -hmm. no sense of the idea that you're wrong, irrespective of whether you desire it or want it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a sort of a very Humean perspective, you know, right. where the idea, yeah, right, right. exactly, where, where the emotions are essentially the right. foundation of your goals. Right, right. So essentially, he's arguing against a Humean, so the other side is essentially Humean, in a way, and the other, the other side says, um, it has to come from sentiment. You know right. that that reason is the slave of the passions. Um, it has to ultimately come from sentiment, and 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 Derek says no, it doesn't come from that kind of um, subjectivity, as it were. Mm.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had on uh, Richard Pettigrew not to shift topics a little bit. We had on Richard Pettigrew. I think it was a year ago, and we talked about identity and Parfit's kind of conception of it. So, do you remember when we talked about? Um, and this was such an interesting episode. Remember yeah. when we talked about the ship and like? So the idea is like, okay, you know, if you get a rid of a little bit about it, is that still you? If you get a little bit rid of more, Theseus? yeah, 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 right. Yeah. So, do you remember that? Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Uh, better for you too. <laughs> okay, I hear you. yeah. So I, I, like, I can oh, talk. I can talk about it sure. if you'd like. Go for it, That's great. Go for it. Uh, we're on to personal identity here. So, yeah, yeah. so we've actually sort of, in a way, we've, we've, we've started at end Parfit and we're going back to early Parfit now. So end Parfit is Parfit and objectivity, which is, you know, the, the, the last 25 years of his life. The first um, 15 years of his life, or 20, yeah, about 15 years of his life, no, a bit more than that, is, is, is working on sort of other topics including personal identity personal identity is the question what it is that makes me the same person over time so how is it that i am the same person now uh, than i was at the beginning of this interview that i was when i was five years old that i will be when i'm 85 years old inshallah that i get there um <laughs> And he imagines, he has lots of thought experiments, but one of his thought experiments, he imagines somebody who goes into a teletransport, a bit like in Star Trek, and is beamed to another planet. That, and what happens is their, their molecules are kind of copied and they reappear in this exact copy on another planet. And, you know, then they come back and they, they're, they're back on planet Earth and they blah, blah, blah. This keeps going several times. Um, and then one time the person in the white lab says, well, you know, this time when you're beamed to, the, to um, planet Mars, the original, you will stay where you are and you can talk to your copy on planet Mars. And... You know, it's a bit weird. You're talking to your double, as it were, and your, your double is just exactly the same as you. It's got the same memories, the same dispositions, thinks it's you. You can see the same shaving cut that you cut yourself in the morning. It's on the, it's on, uh, it's on the, the, this other person's face. Um, and then the, the person in the white lab said, oh, dear, I've just discovered that as part of this process, unfortunately, you're going to suffer some cardiac failure and you're gonna die in uh, you'll cease to exist in mm -hmm. half an hour but your copy will continue to exist on mars and one of parfit's kind of central questions is well should you care um should you care that as it were <laughs> the person on earth disappears but this exact copy still exists on mars and he changes his mind a bit about personal identity, but the one thing that is consistent throughout his philosophical career is that he says that identity is not what matters. You know, whatever you want to call the same person, that's not what matters. The most important thing is that you have psychological continuity and that persists so that you have, so your memories survive, your, your you know, your dispositions, your character survives. If that survives, then it's that's the most important thing. Whether you want to call that the same person or not is much less important than this mm -hmm. question of what survives. And if you if you survive psychologically, if you if there's a psychological connectedness, that's what matters. And so he thinks that you shouldn't get too upset about 
uh, the fact that the, this, the, the, the one on earth has disappeared and your copy has survived, what matters has, has survived. And obviously, that's a very controversial view. I think many people think, oh, my God, I've died. It's merely a copy that's up there. But, but um, that's not what Parfit believed. Mm -hmm. Well, being that there is that idea of psychological continuity, I, I can definitely get behind his argument. It's just that I suppose that if I had to place myself in that particular situation, let's say I was the original. Well, actually, sorry, I should ask this. Are we asking if the clone cares about the original dying, or are we asking if the original cares about the original dying? Yeah, the original is whether the original. Yeah, cares yeah. So I mean, on one level, yes, uh, I would feel better knowing that in some way I would continue. It's just that I would have this sort of illusion of thinking that you know, uh, oh, this experience is going to just dissipate and end. So it's still, you know, from my perspective, psychological death and something to sort of tackle you know at the end of the road so it's it's a little rough but yes i would like that there's another version of me maybe that can interact with maybe family or, or something like that and right yeah, so 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 um he doesn't change his mind very much about anything else but he changes his mind a little about psychological continuity about personal identity which i can explain a bit if you're interested please, um, please. well so um, he later on he comes to believe that um, what we are is our the psychological stuff, right? But the psychological stuff rests within an organism. Okay, so we're born, we we emerge from our mother's womb. At that stage, we don't exist because what we are is we're we're this sort of you know, a, 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 we've been a fetus, we're newly born, we don't have, we have, we have almost nothing psychologically. Yeah. Um, a person emerges from that. Uh, the person sits within this organism. Okay, so um, one way of thinking about it, which uh, a very good philosopher gave me, this is not my metaphor, but it's a very helpful one. It's a bit like um, a car horn in a, a vehicle. So the car horn doesn't make any sense without the vehicle, right? The car. You can't have a horn without a car. The car horn only exists because the car exists. But the horn is not the same as the car. Mm -hmm. So um, he comes to believe that what we are is that we are, we are people who sit within, uh, within this biological organism. So um, we're not the same as that biological organism, but we sit within it. Mm. Um, and we rely upon it. So that has, um, it has important implications for, for you know, uh, beginning life ethics and for end of life ethics. You might think that um, if you're brain dead, for example, but your body continues to exist, well, according to this later view of Parfits, you're effectively dead. Right. Your, your body's still there, the, the organism's still there, functioning, your heart and your lungs and everything's going, but your brain's not there, so the person is no longer there. Um, but, you, but, your, but your body's still there. And because he thinks that what matters is psychological continuity, in, in Parfit's for you, you're as, you know, you're as good as dead. In, um, and yeah. you might think of something similar about, let's say, a very early embryo. So, you know, if the, 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 uh, let's say, 10 days after conception, where 
there's you know there's debates about whether you can experiment on embryos and so on well part of it might say well you've got the you've got the body you've got the organism but you don't yet have the person the person is yet to emerge and so again he would be fine i think with experimenting on early stage embryos because the person emerges within within the body but the person is not identical to the body is that is that clear is that yeah. is that comprehensible yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting is that just thinking about the kind of doppelganger, I mean, it's so counterintuitive to think that there's another version of you and it's not you, you know, because we think automatically, I think of twins and the thinking is like, well, twins are everywhere and it's clearly not the person. I mean, if you look yeah. at just twins, yeah, if you look at twin studies, a lot of the times you'll have a twin who, you know, some people will joke and say, well, are you the evil twin or whatever? Um, but the idea is that twins are sometimes so distinct that you have completely different people. So the thinking is, okay, even if like, let's say this doppelganger is a lot like me, it's still not me. And it's so counterintuitive. I just wonder what, how far would have addressed that well so so he ends up he ends up sort of accepting that in a way so he ends up saying well the person on mars because they exist in a different organism right right um so he, this is the one, one thing he changes his mind about the his later view his mature view is that the person on mars is not the same person is not identical because it's got a different organism nonetheless he carries on believing the most important message that he has that what matters has survived right which so is a psychological the, which yeah. is psychological continuity so he so he so at, towards the end of his life he'll say okay i grant you i grant you this is not the same person okay it's not identical the person on mars that is just a copy is not the same because it hasn't got the same organism okay mm -hmm. but it's got what matters it's got psychological continuity I love it. And yeah, and just, you know, because for time's sake, I want to kind of get into the personal stuff too, because I thought it was super fascinating, especially the fact that you 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 knew him and you worked with him to whatever extent. So David, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Derek? Yeah, so I um, did first an undergraduate degree at Oxford, and then I did something called the BPhil, which mm. is quite a well-known philosophy degree at Oxford. It's two years. You do um, well, you used to do, in any case, um, three exams on different areas, and you would do a dissertation. And my dissertation was on obligations to future people. And future people and our questions about future people and philosophical questions about how many people there should be and all sorts of kind of puzzles and conundrums about future people, our responsibilities to future people, it all starts with Parfit. Parfit basically invented the subgenre of the philosophy of future people. Mm -hmm. And the, his famous book, Reasons and Persons, comes out in 84. I do the BFIL starting in 86. Um, so I study with Derek in, I think, probably 1987. Mm -hmm. And I do my dissertation on future people. So I study with him then. And then I go off and do a bunch of other things. And then I take a few years off philosophy. I come back to philosophy. And I do a PhD in philosophy. And this time my supervisor is a woman called Janet Radcliffe Richards. Mm -hmm. And Janet is the woman who marries Derek and was already a partner of Derek. So I was taught by both Derek and by Derek's wife, Janet Radcliffe Richards, who's a well-known philosopher in her own right. So um, in fact, I knew Janet better than Derek, but I was in a very good position to write the biography because I knew them both. I knew his sister a little bit. I knew some of his friends. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I that's how I knew Derek. And later on, I had an academic link with something called the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics, 
in Oxford and Derek theoretically had a link with the same institution and theoretically we shared an office together so my name was on the office door and his name was off the, on the office door and a couple of others but I never saw him he never turned up he worked from home so um, you know really the centre liked and was having an association with him because it was having an association with a great man but he never he very rarely turned up at the institution no, that's so funny yeah and you know no go ahead Adam. Oh, um, no, actually, you should continue off of this point. I'll ask about the repugnant. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so I was thinking just, you know, because we what we would think of when we think of Derek at this point, this, this was a, it wasn't a term that was, I think, around at his time, but neurodivergent, you know? So what was that like for you, David, to put your mind into the mind of somebody who is as neurodivergent? Because I'm assuming, you know, for the most part, if, like, let's say atypical exists, you're probably more on the atypical side of the coin. So I would wonder, what was it like for you to actually try to get to understand the inner workings of his mind? And obviously, some of his kind of more idiosyncratic Syncrasies or peculiarities. Yeah, well, as it happens, I, I, I don't know why I'm kind of attracted to that kind of personality, and right. I, I don't know whether I understand them or not. I kind of feel like I understand them. I'm, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to these characters than many are. So I've written about uh, Wittgenstein, who, in some ways, is a similar character. I've written about. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who I'm much less sympathetic to, but is a slightly similar character. Um, I've written about the chess player Bobby Fischer, who's mm -hmm. very, very, very yeah. similar. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, you, it, I'm no um, psychologist or psychiatrist. I can't diagnose people, but I spoke to lots of experts in, in autism. I mean, I think Derek suspected that he was on the spectrum himself. And I found some correspondence where he admits this to friends. And we haven't talked about any of his eccentricities, but there's that's lots of very strange things that happen to him. And, and he behaves in a you know, strange way. And he, he, you know, he was dresses, he always wears the same clothes every day. And um, uh, he, he, you know, he always has a, a uh, a red tie and white shirt and gray trousers, because he doesn't want to waste time choosing what to wear. And towards the end of it, it's like he's eating the same meal every single day. Um, and his social relationships are very unusual. Um, I mean, I found it very easy to get in. I don't, maybe I shouldn't, uh, maybe I've got him all wrong, but it felt to me like I found it very easy to get inside his head and to empathize with him. The big puzzle with Derek, which I didn't realize when I began the book and then just kind of threw me completely was that I assumed he'd always been like this. Mm. I, I, I mean, I, I took on the writing project because I thought Derek was an interesting person to write about, in part because he was so unusual. And then I begin to investigate his early life to discover that until he's 25, there were very few indications of this at all. And that suddenly becomes puzzling because, you know, you're not supposed, you don't develop autism and yet the first 25 years of his life he seems to be sort of popular has friends he's got lots of interests he plays a musical instrument he he goes out he has lots of girlfriends uh, he you know, uh he's involved in debating and, and journalism and all sorts of things a very very rich existence and then towards the end of his life he's thrown everything away. He's pared everything back. And it's only right towards the end of his life. It's only philosophy and nothing else. 
Mm. Um, and so that that genuinely puzzled me. And I'm not sure I have a go at trying to explain that. But I don't know whether I've got the bot to the bottom of that. That was that was very, very odd to, to discover that early Derek and later Derek seem like ironically two different people. Wow. Yeah, and I'm sorry. I think I said neuroatypical. I meant neurotypical. So atypical is actually the neurodivergent. Um, yeah. So yeah, wow. That's so interesting. So yeah, go ahead. You were going to say something. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so in, in regards to uh, population ethics, I'm actually very curious about this. Uh, what exactly is the, because uh, I know he's famous for the non-identity problem and uh, the repugnant conclusion. I'm very curious, uh, what is exactly the repugnant conclusion? Uh, yeah, so they, those are two very different puzzles. The right, repugnant right. conclusion is the claim that for any set of people, so let's say there are currently 8 billion people on the world, in, on planet Earth, um, let's say they all have, which is not true at all, flourishing lives. So for any set of people like that, there is a much bigger set of people um, let's say eight trillion trillion people um, whose lives are only just better than nothing. Um, and that scenario, that world is better than the world in which there are eight billion lives of very happy, flourishing lives. So the repugnant conclusion is that this second world, this world in which there are trillions and trillions of lives only just better than nothing, um, is a better world than one in which there are 8 billion lives, all of which are extremely high quality and uh, do things that you imagine a high quality life will do and have friends and love and happiness and enough money to live and all the, and enjoy Mozart and good novels and whatever it is that makes up a good life, that that second life with trillions of you know lives just better than nothing is a better universe. And he has lots of arguments for that. And um, he doesn't want to believe it. He wants to think he wants to think that conclusion is ridiculous. Uh, it's a repugnant conclusion, as he calls it. But his arguments push him towards this repugnant conclusion. And again, it's something he's working on right at the end of his life. He's he's trying to find out, find the answer to the repugnant conclusion to show that the repugnant conclusion is false. But he ends up essentially, you know, thinking that um, uh, we have to accept this repugnant conclusion. Now, I'm curious, because one of the first thoughts that I have is that in the world where there's 8 billion people, versus the world where there's trillions of people. Now, I, I what I'm guessing, or what I'm understanding is just for the sheer fact that there are more lives, net lives in the other world, um, it seems to be the reason why that's better because yeah, they're better than nothing it's, however yeah it's it's a calculation so each of them is each of them is worth more than one more than one point if you if you if, if you think a a life that's no better and no worse than nothing is zero and a life that's just better than nothing is worth one and a life that's massively better than nothing is worth let's say a hundred that if you have enough ones you get to more than a hundred Sure. However, here, I guess here's one of the thoughts that I'm having, or at least just a, sort of an impulse intuition, which is just either way, you're creating a, I mean, in this example, if you have a set number of people and it's limited 
to 8 billion versus the other example, which is limited to 1 trillion. I mean, just because you've set the parameter, uh, it's almost as if you're, I mean, why, why, I mean, isn't it arbitrary then? Uh, well, the, what... the repugnant conclusion is, it's not that there's a set number. The repugnant conclusion is for any number of lives where you have this smaller loop group, True. which are happy, there is a number of lives, let's not say what it is, but there is a, a number of lives which is sufficiently big that it outweighs the smaller number of lives that have very high quality of life. Okay. Yeah, so and, that was, and, okay. and that seems to almost everybody you put it to, everybody thinks that can't be right. That cannot be the right answer. It cannot be right that trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of lives just better than nothing is better than a, a life where we've got lots and lots of very flourishing, happy, successful lives. I, I, I suppose, yeah, if I had to like take it another step, I guess I could imagine sort of ripple effects of what are the consequences of having so many people? Maybe, well, so, maybe it's so possible. You, so you have to put that to one side. You have to assume because what it, 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 if you say, um, if you have, if, if it has further consequences, let's say it causes climate change and mass extinction, then clearly the trillions, trillions of lives are not better than the 8 billion because, because they'll end up being low, low, lower than zero, as it were. So you have to put that assumption to one side, assume that there are no further consequences, as it were, I that these, these trillions and trillions of lives are in fact worth, you know, one point uh, on the scale of flourishing. Um, uh, but they, you know, but the planet Earth continues to exist and, and, and so on. Um, they don't end up fighting and killing each other so that their lives are nothing or worse than nothing. Um, so obviously they might, in, in actual practice, of course, there would be these further consequences where, you know, people, there just wouldn't be enough resources, right? We'd run out of, we'd run out of food. People would starve to death and their lives would be worse than nothing. So put, mm. put, put, put that important assumption aside and, and, and imagine we're populating, you know, lots of planets, for example. Um, uh, again, it can't be the case that, that um, 8 billion on planet Earth is better than trillions and trillions, even if there's another on other plants, if their lives are so, you know, they're not worse than nothing, but only just better than nothing. And, and that's, the, that's the counterintuitive um, conclusion he reaches, uh, which he can't believe and doesn't want to believe and nobody else can believe. I love it. This is so epic that we're doing active philosophy on the podcast. This is great. Sure. <laughs> All right. And speaking of philosophy, so as we start to uh, wrap up, um, so uh, David, as I'm sure you can probably guess, because obviously, though, not only do we ask you on the podcast, but I'm sure you get listeners all the time telling you this. Uh, so for us as sort of younger podcasters, uh, we look up to people like you and Nigel, right? So you guys started the podcast in two, uh, Philosophy Bites. You guys started the podcast in 2007, which to us is, first of all, how does even somebody think to start a podcast in that year when like nobody even really knows what podcasting is you know like rogan i think started in 2012 so how did you guys how did that even come about how did you guys think okay let's do a podcast well uh, the origin was that um it was due to sort of irritation with my part-time day job at the moment at, at that time so i had um a long long time ago i'd made a series on philosophy on the bbc and I got a fantastic response from around the world. So I worked for the BBC World Service, which was the bit of the BBC that broadcast to the rest of the world. And I did this series where I interviewed 
some famous philosophers and um, about, you know, one was about Aristotle, one was about Nietzsche, one was about Wittgenstein, one was about Kant, one was about Hume and so on. Um, and I got letters in from, this was way before email and I got letters in from all around the world. So people from yeah. Lagos would bother to write to me and they would put their letter in an envelope, they'd put a stamp on it and they would send it all the way to Bush House, the headquarters of the BBC World Service. I knew I was on to kind of a winner that there was this big interest in philosophy out there. And I tried to get another series and I couldn't get it commissioned. And I didn't really know Nigel at the time, but I, Nigel had helped me a bit with a book I'd written on Rousseau. And he'd invited me to a interview that he was doing with a famous photographer. And I went along, he was a very good interviewer. I was very impressed by him. And he'd also at that stage started um, putting up on the internet, because he, he's a kind of techie, um, chapters of one of his books, I think it was Philosophy and, and, uh, and the Classics. Um, and so he was clearly sort of aware of the internet early on um, and aware of its possibilities. So I suggested to him that we do this podcast. And I'd actually had a friend who had made a children's podcast and was doing something very clever was was um, pa repackaging out of copyright children's stories. So it was taking, you know, Alice in Wonderland, which there was no longer any intellectual property rights, copyright over it, and was kind of rewriting them and was making them available for parents for long car journeys. And it still exists. And at the, at the time he was getting 40,000 downloads a month. And I thought, wow, 40,000. Wow. That's incredible. And now he gets like a million a month at least. And I, so I said to Nigel, I'm, I think we could do the same for philosophy. Um, so we started in, yeah, as you say, a long, long time ago. We had first mover. I mean, we, we've had now, I think we're up to like, we, we only now do about one a month, but we're up to about 46, 47 million downloads, you know. It's a, um, wow. But we had first mover advantage. So I think for years there was no other competition. I'm very pleased to be doing this podcast. But you know, since writing the Parfit book, and it's just amazing how many philosophy podcasts have, <laughs> have approached me in the last few weeks. I thought, oh, my God, you know, we, we were alone. And now there's, you know, there's quite a few out there now. So, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it, that, I'm very pleased, you know, the, the, the more the merrier, um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, you know, as you'll have discovered, there are lots of people interested in in ideas and and these kinds of issues. Yeah. And then how come what was so important about in terms of public philosophy? What was so important for you guys in terms of getting it into the mainstream or what made it so important? Well, I think we both believed in that with um, we both thought that there was a sort of demand for that. We're both believers in in sort of accessibility. And I think we both think that it's not true of all ideas. I mean, some there were some very complicated ideas out there, which which can't be translated into an accessible, you know, we do short podcasts, ours are like 20 minutes. You can't translate it into 20 minutes, but that's the minority. You know, philosophy is a very difficult topic. Uh, you, you know, some of the things we've been talking about today are quite personal identity, the pregnant conclusion, they're quite complicated and it gets a lot more complicated. There are many areas which are, you know, much more complicated. Nonetheless, um, most philosophy can be made accessible without losing the rigor of it. Um, and I've always thought that there is almost no correlation between 
the brilliance of a philosophical idea and how accessible one can make that in terms of sort of translating it into into things that public can understand and some yeah. of the very great philosophers are very bad at translating their ideas or writing their ideas in a way that most people understand and some of the very great philosophers are very good at it so you take somebody like um hegel i'm sure you know <laughs> a very good philosopher very difficult to read you take somebody like hume uh, who's, you know, un I think unquestionably the greatest philosopher to write in the English language ever. Um, Hume is very easy to read, even though his ideas are so profound and so deep. He writes in a way which is very, very easy to understand. And actually, I think there's, for most philosophical ideas, there's no reason why we can't be more like Hume and less like Hegel. Um, oh. And a philosophy podcast can do that, I think. I love that. And then, so one of our final questions would be what advice, and it's okay if you can't think of anything off the spot, but I am really curious. So what advice would you have for younger philosophy podcasts, like in terms of sort of uh, information, things to cover, uh, what would be important for them to know? Um, well, I think there are different ways. It's difficult to generalize advice because there are different ways yeah, yeah. to do it. One thing we went for, uh, um, I think my, my main advice is if you're going to do it, do it properly that's my if when people ask me with should they start a podcast i say actually it's quite a lot of hard it's quite a lot of work you know there's quite a lot of reading to do and so on we edit very heavily because what, what i want to do is i want every sentence um to be worth listening to and you know what i've been saying now 35 percent of what i've said is total rubbish and you know i you could remove it's difficult to remove it on video it's much easier to remove on audio you could remove 35 percent of what i've said without losing any important content um or maybe maybe more maybe 75 percent. i don't know but there's a percentage of you could take from me and and the substance w wouldn't suffer um but i'd say take it seriously there are lots of podcasts out there there are certain there are, you know as you know there are thousands thousands of podcasts out there most of them are rubbish and they don't pay any attention to quality at all. And you think, well, why is anybody going to bother to listen to that? You've got mm. to what you it's there's so much good stuff out there. The bad stuff is just going to disappear. So if you're going to do it, it's more important than when we started. I mean, we always knew about I was a bit had training in the BBC. So quality was all recording quality was always important to me as well as the substance of what we were talking about. But I would say if you're going to do it, make sure you, you really work at it. Otherwise, don't bother. I love it. All right, Alan, final questions for David before we wrap up? Yes. If we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Well, the book, it's uh, it's called Parfit, um, a philosopher um, uh, and um, his mission to save morality. Um, and it's in bookshops or you can buy it on Amazon or you can buy it from... Uh, it's Princeton University Press, so I think you can buy it direct from Princeton, which would be a good thing to do. Um, I don't know. I'm on Twitter. That's about the only social media I do. Yeah. And what, uh, what's your what's your Twitter handle? Um, I'm at David Edmonds 100. I'm I'm not a great Twitterer, but but I'm 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 there every now and again. And of so, course we can yeah. and of course we can find you on Philosophy Bites, which Philosophy is available Bites, everywhere. Yeah. 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 David, thank you so so much for this coming on. Amazing. This was excellent. Okay. Really pleased to do it and. Uh, Good luck with your podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, man. We'll talk to you Take soon. Care. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. All right. That was awesome. So everyone, 
If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, where Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.